Well, as I already mentioned, I'm not preaching today. We have uh, the pleasure of welcoming Keaton Paul. Keaton is the Director of Student Ministries at Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia. Keaton's also a Bible teacher at Zion Christian Academy there in Columbia. He was licensed to preach by the Nashville Presbytery in November of last year and is working toward ordination now. So we're grateful to have Keaton come and preach to us this morning. Well, it is a joy to be with you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. And we'll be looking at the entirety of the psalm. Humans are are natural-born blow-ups and burnouts. Uh, We we have this this, uh, inclination to to constantly obsess over certain things. And and we'll grab hold of uh, of a, a, a particular thing and we'll wear it out and grind it up and beat it to a pulp, and then we get tired of it, and we move on to the next thing. Because the thing that we once found joy in that particular thing no longer brings us joy. What used to satisfy us no longer satisfies us at all. And we go through much, actually, of our lives blowing up one thing and burning out on another thing uh, in this endless cycle of blowing up and burning out. There's one conclusion, though, that we can draw from that cycle, and that is this. None of those things were intended to satisfy our souls. What the psalmist is going to call us this day to do is to long for the one thing that can satisfy our souls, and that is the Lord himself. We're about to take up and read, but before we do, let us ask for the Holy Spirit's help in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you alone are able to satisfy our souls, and that we are not our own, but belong to you. And so now, O Lord, feed your people with your word. Give us now eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of our Lord from Psalm 84, beginning with verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. 
Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what the psalmist is calling us to do, he's giving us one big point, and here it is. Long for God. Long for the Lord. And he'll give us four reasons as to why we must long for the Lord. And the first is this. We must long for the Lord because he alone satisfies our souls. Here are the sorts of language that that the psalmist brings out. He, He says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And it's not so much in the psalmist's mind that like the, the place is, is beautiful or lovely. It, it's the fact that that is where God is. He, he is calling us to say it, it matters not of the place or the location. Wherever the Lord is, that's where I must be. My soul, verse 2, longs, yes, even faints for the Lord. The the psalmist here is calling us and saying, look at the world around you. There there is a natural born motive in your heart to desire certain things. We all have longings. We all have desires. And the psalmist says, whenever we recognize what is the truly satisfying source for our souls, we recognize it is the Lord. His soul even faints. He goes on to say, verse 3, even the sparrow finds a home. There's almost a jealousy here of saying these birds get to, get to dwell near you, O Lord. He finishes out the psalm by looking and saying, in your courts, a day there is better than a thousand elsewhere. It is a thousand times better to be in the place of the Lord than anywhere else in the world. What the psalmist is bringing up here is a profound theological truth. And that's this. We were made for God. That is what the psalmist wants us to see here. We were not made to do a job. We were not made to, you know, walk around and live this life and promote ourselves or you know, get rich or anything like that, what we were made for is for the living, holy, triune God. Now, we have a problem, though. We try virtually everything to satisfy our souls except with the Lord. That's why we're blow-ups and burnouts. We seek to fill our souls up with things that were never intended to fill them up and then think that that's why we were made. I I have lived in the South my whole life. 
Um, I grew up in the town that Zion is uh, at and rural south and, you know, except for a few years for college uh, in West Tennessee and then a little bit uh, for seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. I've spent my whole life here in the south and I, I'm not very athletic either, so it puts me in a bit of a, an issue. Um, because growing up, you know, I, I wasn't able to relate much. I love sports, but I'm just not very good at them. And so I would hear this all the time, right? There was the one guy that everybody loved. He was normally a really great dude, very athletic. And you would hear his parents say this. He was made to play ball. <laughs> and maybe he is very good until one day he steps out on the football field and blows an ACL, and never touches a pigskin again. What's he made for now? Or, uh, you know, it, not even in the South, but like in, in music worldwide, we hear this sort of thing a lot. I was made for loving you. <laughs> Except we're not very good at loving each other, are we? No, we were not made to play ball, and we were not made to, to, to simply try to, to fill other people up in this sort of way. What were we made for? We were made for God. The loss of anything like this, and it's very interesting that, that if we experience loss in the things that we think we're made for, take, for instance, the young athlete, how many athletes do you know who whenever they stop playing the sport that they thought they were made for are distraught? They've spent 15, 16, 20 years devoted to that one thing and now it's gone and they are broken and distraught. But how much greater that something so small as sports would be something that carries somebody to be utterly distraught when it's taken away from them, how much greater is the pain of thinking of the loss of God? Being separated from his love. The things that we think and at least in practice try to convince ourselves that we were made for are infinitesimally smaller than the thing we were actually made for. To be separated from the love of God is an unthinkable thing. That is what our soul most longs for, and that is what our soul must be filled up by. But secondly, the psalmist brings this truth out. The second reason is this. Why must we long for God? Because they are blessed who do. Here's what he says. This is verses 4, 5, and 12. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now this, this idea of blessedness, we see it quite a lot, especially in the Psalms uh, and in the wisdom literature. And, and oftentimes, you know, if you read the older commentators, take, 
for instance, Matthew Henry, that they'll look at blessedness and oftentimes equate it with, with happy. You can almost translate it the same word that way. Happy is the one who, who does this. And that's, that's fine and fair and good. But there's, there's probably a deeper meaning than simply just happiness. In wisdom literature and in the Bible, this blessedness is more often than not a, a state of being when we are functioning how God intended us to function. There's almost this concept with blessedness that, that is uniquely tied to peace. Those who are functioning and operating as God intended them to function and operate, they have peace. They're blessed. They're doing what they were intended to do. They're functioning as they were intended to function. And... and we see here, this is very interesting. When we take up this blessedness, how is the Lord calling us to function? He's calling us to function by saying, here's what peace, here's what happiness, here's what blessedness looks like. Those who dwell in the house of the Lord. Those who commune and fellowship with God. Or... Look at what functioning looks like. What, do, what must humans do as we operate as God intended us? Finding our strength in God. Being and functioning as the one who trusts not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. This is how God intended for us to exist and to function as image bearers, being desperately needy for God. He doesn't call us to come and to be strong. He doesn't call us to come and be wise. He calls us to come and to be desperately needy for Him. That His strength would be what sustains us. That His love would be what fills us up, that his grace would be what makes our hearts sing. That's a good news. Very countercultural news, too, mind you, where the, the world uh, and the kingdom of this world will regularly tell you, blessed are those who win. Blessed are the strong. Blessed are the smart who are able to use other people to get what they want. But the scripture tells us a very different thing. We were made to be desperately needy for God. With my students, I often um, you know, paint this picture of what, um, what the Bible talks about as far as, you know, we as humans are supposed to function. And I say, you know, what the world will try to convince you to do is to operate and function as your own gods, which is going to destroy you one way or another. And here's how ridiculous that is, right? Imagine somebody buys a brand new Tesla, and it's a very nice car, and it's got all the bells and whistles, it drives itself and everything else. It would be a terribly sad life if somebody bought a Tesla and tried to use it as a washing machine. 
Or, better yet, if somebody buys the, the greatest, you know, purebred Labrador retriever, would make a great duck dog, and they get it, and they keep thinking, it doesn't act like my cat. It, it's excited when I come home, and it doesn't want me to die. Like, this is... It's not functioning how I want it to function. But so often, when we seek to fill ourselves up and be blessed and function on our own accords, we're doing something as absurd as that. It's a very sad life when we treat these things uh, in ways that they were never intended to be treated. For instance, it's a very sad life for your spouse when you expect them to do God things like fill you up and satisfy you always and be perfect. It's a very sad life when you expect your kids to satisfy your deepest longings and your sense of purpose and place. Only God can do that. It's a very sad life when you expect your friends or your identity or your work or your health or anything else in this world to fill you up and satisfy your soul. It was never intended to do that. It will always let you down. But blessed is the person who comes before God and says, you alone can satisfy my soul. You alone can fill me up. But uh, the psalmist continues on. How does this even work? He doesn't promise us uh, fields of joy and everything will be good and lush and easy. He's very, very real uh, as he kind of begins to expound this. But he calls us to long for the Lord. Third reason, because with the Lord... Even droughts are fruitful. Verses 6 and 7. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Um, We're not really sure where or what the valley of Baca is, but it's likely that that word baka is um, very similar to the, the word in Hebrew for weeping. Uh, it, it's painting this picture here in verses 6 and 7 that, that even as they go through areas of desolation and areas of weeping and areas and places of turmoil and difficulty, that actually it's in those places that much fruit is born forth. And this is regularly, you know, the, the theme that's running through the scripture, right? You can see this uh, going back to Exodus. The, the wilderness wandering is regularly what's kind of being painted here, and also regularly what the Lord uses to grow Christians and to draw us near. Which is a terribly painful truth in reality, but nonetheless, this is how the Lord operates. The scriptures, you can go to 1 Peter, for instance. The the scriptures paint this picture of the Christian life as one that is a wilderness wandering. We're in a place, in a world, where there is nothing that can sustain us. It is a desert 
in this world quite regularly. And that's also good news. Because it's in a place where you have absolutely nothing. You have no food. You have no water. All you have is the Lord who alone is able to miraculously preserve his people. And it's there in those places, in the droughts and in the deserts, that the Lord grows his people. Isn't this what Paul is bringing up in 2 Corinthians 12? He's given this thorn in the flesh, and then at the end he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The psalmist wants us to see that not only are we desperately needy for the Lord, but actually the Lord, by His grace, puts us in very hard places sometimes. What is He doing? He's stripping us of things that are actually destroying us. He's tearing away the idols of our hearts as we clutch to them and cling to them and hold them next to our hearts. And the Lord says, this will be painful but it's for your good. You must be emptied, but I'm going to fill you up with something far greater than any of these things. I'm going to fill you up with myself. The Lord loves his people, in fact, too much to let them hold on to the idols of their hearts. Things that destroy us and break us down but the fourth and final reason uh, that the psalmist gives us, uh, we, we have this idea, the psalmist has given us this very, very clearly, that it is the Lord alone who can satisfy our souls. But there is a problem that Scripture has presented to us. We're separated from the Lord. We're sinners. We, we with Adam, our first father, have been banished from the garden. How is it that the Lord will bring us back? That's the great question from Genesis 3 onwards, is how is the Lord going to bring us back to himself? How is it that, that he'll take the rebellious and fallen children of Adam who use the goodness of God's creation and turn everything into idols, and seek to be satisfied by those things, even though it's going to destroy them. How will God fix this? This is what the psalmist picks up with this fourth reason. Because with the Lord, we enjoy our King. Verses 8 and 9. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says that the psalmist here, knowing it or not, is casting his eye forward to a greater anointed one, a greater Messiah, a greater David. He's casting his eyes forward to a far better mediator than even David. He's casting his eyes forward to David's son and David's Lord. This is the glorious prayer of the Christian. 
Lord, hear my prayer, but look on the face of your anointed. Lord, hear my prayer, but see the righteousness of your son who died for me and shed his blood and washed my sins clean. Lord, he stands in my place. He prays on my behalf. He intercedes for me now and ever lives to make intercession on my behalf. Here's the glorious good news of the Christian faith. In asking the question, how will it be that the Lord satisfies the souls of his people? How is it that he'll reconcile us to himself? How is it that I can be filled up and long all the more for this God? First and foremost, he draws near to us. But then, in drawing near to us, he draws us near to himself. He has come down and dwelt with us, and walked with us, and died in our place, and rose from the grave in order that we might dwell with him forever. It's when we wrap our minds around the beauty of God's grace in the work of Christ that our souls long for him all the more. Because we, we look to our king we enjoy his beauty and his grace all the more. We see his majesty and his love on clear display. And that, believer, is what fills our hearts up. That is what satisfies our souls that while we were still sinners, Christ has come and Christ has died for us. So brothers and sisters, may we trust our King, who even now sits interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let us trust to Him as our strength and our shield. May we be desperately needy for Him to satisfy all of our desires and all of our longings. And let us all the more long for the God who alone is able to fill us up. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O oh God, our rock and our strength, how we have failed in coming to you and seeking for you alone to satisfy our souls. Lord, you are our chief end. You are what we were made for. But we rejoice now, O oh Lord, and boast in nothing but Christ and his work. May we enjoy and long to see our King magnified, who has brought us near to you at the high cost of his blood. May we rejoice that he sent a comforter who builds us up and draws us near to you and invites us to your table, O oh God. Be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.